We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 this morning as we continue our study of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. So if you've got a Bible, get over there. About a year or two ago, I was running some errands around town and uh, happened to be outside a store, walking out of the store, and I saw a mom with her son walking in at the same time I was walking out. And I think the boy was three or four years old. And as they walked in, I heard the mom say to her son, she said, now son, I want you to know there is a sign on the door outside this store and it says, please do not touch the glass. Now, as soon as she said it, I knew what was going to happen, right? You know what's going to happen. You haven't even heard the end of the story. I knew where this was headed. The boy looked at her and he said, yes. He goes, please do not touch the glass. She goes, yes, that's correct. And they walked a little further and he goes, so if I did this, boom, and put his hand right on that window, five little finger prints, big palm print. And I just saw the mom go, no, like that. She just put her head down in defeat. And I saw it and I thought, man, I felt sorry for her on the one hand. On the other hand, I kind of thought, rookie mistake, right? You you, you shouldn't have said anything. Had you not said anything, he wouldn't have touched the glass, right? But as I saw that moment, I also thought, you know, it's kind of a microcosm of how we feel as parents sometimes, Because we try to set boundaries and we try to set goals and we have plans for where our kids' lives are going to go and they have this desire to constantly bust outside of those boundaries. Uh, If you don't have children yet, uh, it may be like I did that right now you have a list of my children will never, right? There are things that my kids will never do. I remember thinking, my children will never watch hours of TV at a time. We will sit and we will talk about our feelings, (laughs) right? But then you realize you hit that day where you've just been going all day long and you think the feelings that I would talk about are dark and angry. (laughs) So let's turn on the TV, right? My children will never whine. I actually remember saying that. Before we had children, my children will never whine. They will respectfully communicate their disagreements and whining won't happen. They'll know that's out, right? How long did that last? Not long. My kids will never see me lose my temper and yell. I will always know where my children are. They'll never get out of my sight until they're old enough to handle it. Right? And so we set all of these goals and some of our goals are serious. Some of our goals are realistic. Some of them are unrealistic. But the reality is that we don't know what's going to happen. We can't control our kids. And the biggest reason is because they're people with their own wills and their own minds. You can't predict what's going to happen. I was reminded this week as I was looking at this about two or three years ago, I was in the kitchen And I heard sort of a uh, dust up in the other room between all the kids. And you know how that goes. There There are raised voices and tears and shouting. And all I heard as I walked into the room was uh, my youngest, my son goes, I'm never going to do Zumba again. Right. And he's just crying and in tears. And I thought, this is a moment. I, I don't even know how to respond to this. What do you do? Our oldest had created a little Zumba class with her siblings, and I guess some of the exercises were beyond his skill level, right? So how do you deal with that? You go, Elizabeth, now when you're creating a workout class, you need to consider all skill levels, right? (laughs) And Samuel, working out takes endurance, right? I mean, you don't even know, like, you have those moments, you go, what am I going to do? Okay, now the reality is that often those moments 
are more frustrating than that, right? Things happen that you can't predict. And my guess is that there are some parents in here this morning, you are feeling discouraged, right? Because it's not just one moment of unpredictable things that have happened, right? It's, it's perhaps years in which you've been trying to set some boundaries and parameters. Maybe it's been years that you've been at odds with a child. Maybe you began with the intention of training a child to know Jesus and you've seen that child wander off of the path. And so you feel discouraged and frustrated and maybe angry. And maybe you're not only angry and frustrated with that child, you're angry and frustrated with God. Because the parent-child relationship is one of the most complicated and difficult that most of us will experience. And the reality is, it's not just difficult for parents, is it? It's tough for children. There are some in this room that you are a grown child and you still struggle with your own parents. Right? You've never really resolved that relationship. And you look and you go, maybe they try to do their best, but I don't understand the choices that they made and the direction they sent me on. And so maybe that as a child and as a parent, you've experienced this type of frustration and tension. Right? So it can be difficult. And yet at the same time, I think most of us would say it's the most significant thing that we're trying to do. Right? Most of us would probably say the most significant, if not at least one of the most significant things I'm trying to do is to disciple and shepherd my kids to know Jesus so that they go out into the world as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And I think Paul understood that as he wrote Ephesians chapter 6. If you remember the flow of the book of Ephesians, you'll remember that the first three chapters, he really doesn't issue any major commands, right? The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are this, is all about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, right? That in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. Jesus died for our sin. Jesus rose again to reconcile us to God and then to reconcile us to other people, right? So there are these themes of reconciliation to God, reconciliation to others. And then in the second half of the book, you'll remember chapters four through six, Paul begins to lay out, okay, this is what this looks like in your family. This is what this looks like in your church. This is what this looks like with your kids, with your marriage at your workplace, right? This is what it looks like to live out that reconciliation. And here in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, Paul drills down into the parent-child relationship. Okay, and what I hope to accomplish before we leave this morning is simply this. I want to do two things. One is, if you are feeling frustrated and discouraged that you can't seem to get your kids to meet the expectations you have for them, I want to release a little bit of that pressure off of your shoulders this morning. Okay, so I hope that on the one hand, we'll be able to take off some of that pressure that says, you know what, I've got to get them to conform to certain expectations, right? But at the same time, I want to elevate the task of parenting to say that Paul saw it as extremely significant. And we're going to see before we leave, you really just have one goal. You really just have one goal. And I think a lot of the tension comes because we multiply expectations and goals that aren't necessarily biblical. You have one goal, and that is to be faithful as well as you can to lead them to know Jesus. So that as they grow and you sort of play out that line of freedom, one day they will emerge into the world able to walk with Jesus and able to proclaim Jesus. All right, that's what Paul says. You can't control the outcomes. 
right? Now, I will admit it's a little bit fearful to stand up here and talk about parenting in front of you because you guys know my kids, right? Because my kids are not done yet, right? We're still very much in process. Our youngest one is seven. Our oldest one is 13. And so I stand here talking about Ephesians 6 as much in process as anybody else in this room. So so what we want to do is say, okay, how did Paul approach this relationship? He's going to address both kids and parents this morning. And I think as it comes together, we're going to see this one goal emerge, that the goal is they learn to trust God, they learn to know Jesus, and to proclaim Jesus in the world. All right, Ephesians chapter 6. If you've got a Bible, grab it. Let's start in verse 1. Paul begins, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Okay, so the first three verses simply say this. Paul says, children, obey and honor. Now, this word for children, there's actually two words used in the New Testament for children, when you see that. One is paideon. Paideon is a word that really refers to those who are little, right? Young kids before the age of maturity. The word that's used here is not paideon, it's technion, right? And technion has the idea of you're simply a descendant of your parents, right? Anybody who's a child, whether you are little, whether you are big, whether you're grown, immature, mature, whatever it is, if you have parents and you were once a child, that should cover about 100% of us, okay? This command applies on some level to you. Now, the reason this is important, if you go back to Roman culture in the first century and also Jewish culture, parents actually had authority over their children, especially in Roman culture, often all the way into adulthood. In other words, you could be a full-grown man. You could even be a magistrate in the city. You could have authority in your community, and your dad could still come and tell you what to do. You were still under their authority well into adulthood. Right? In the Jewish culture, it was often until you were married and had a family of your own. Right? So that line of authority did not end when you turned 18 or when you turned 22. Right? Now, in our culture, that line is a little different. Right? We tend to think of maturity as happening at whatever point you are no longer dependent upon your parents. Right? And I think that's a fair way to understand this passage when he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. There seems to be an implication that you have some sort of authority relationship here when he says, obey. Now, I've looked at the Greek word obey. The Greek word is hupakuo. And I've looked at a number of passages to try to figure out what exactly does that mean. And here's what I found. It means obey, right? It means actually do what they tell you to do. Okay, so Paul would say, look, if you are a child or you're in a dependent relationship, especially still with your parents, here's the task that you have. Obey. Obey. Okay, and why does Paul say that first to children? Okay, I think there are a couple of reasons, but I think he understands that learning to obey our parents is really the first time we're going to learn about authority. And there may may be very few lessons more important in our lives than learning how to obey and submit to authority, right? None of us likes to submit to authority. I can remember being a kid about seven or eight years old one day, and I was sitting in front of the TV watching a show, and this was back before Netflix, right? So you had to watch it then, or you might never see it again. 
And I remember as I sat there, my mom came in and she said, Matt, you didn't do the trash. You need to do the trash. And I said, I will do the trash. It's on my list right after this show. My mom said, no, you need to get up right now and do the trash. Right, and I argued and I pushed back and she insisted. So I finally got up and I remember walking through the house, stomping through with that bag and going, I don't want to do the trash. I'm nothing but a trash slave robot around here. Right. And I'm just kind of complaining about it. And the reason I remember is because it was at that point that my mom actually walked into the room and heard all my muttering. I'm nothing but a slave. They don't care about me. I have to do everything around, you know, all this kind of stuff. And my mom goes, what are you talking about? Right? You have a roof over your head. We're taking care of you. And, and you know what? Here's, here's often what we will tell our own children, that God has given us responsibility to train you to understand how to submit to authority and ultimately how to submit to God. Right? And, and obeying your parents is the first step in that. So we provide and we care, and we'll see this later in the passage. We nourish, but submitting to authority is key. I would even say this. If you're a college student in this room and you're still dependent on your parents, if you're a young adult and you're still financially dependent upon your parents, you are still obligated, I think, to obey. When I was the college pastor at Grace, almost every year when we were putting together our mission trip teams, There would be a student who would come and say, I really feel called by God to go on this trip to China or wherever it is, but my parents don't want me to go. Right? And the question was always, well, are they paying for you? Are they paying for your education? Are they paying your bills? Are they feeding you? Yes. Right? Then my answer was, then you are called first to obey that authority structure. See that the Bible never says you have to go on this trip. The Bible says you need to obey the commands of Jesus. Now, in other instances, we would have students come and say, my parents have told me to no longer go to church. My parents have told me that I can't get baptized. In those instances, I would say, look, the reality is that your allegiance to God, if there's a clear command of scripture, your allegiance to God trumps, in this case, your allegiance to your parents. But 99% of the time, the best way that you can show your respect for Jesus Christ is to honor and obey your parents, right? This reflects Jesus, right? Jesus is the son of God, right? Jesus is fully God, fully human. And yet, guess what? Jesus obeyed his parents. Luke chapter two, verses 51 to 52. Jesus went down with his parents and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now, now think about this. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is God. Right? In the grand scheme of eternity, Jesus actually has authority over his parents. But to demonstrate what was right, Jesus submitted to his authority because it was the right thing to do. And now Paul goes on and he says, honor your father and your mother. And he quotes the fifth commandment, both in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. We see this fifth commandment of the law. Honor your father and mother. And he says, this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may live long on the earth, right? If you're a parent, you say, amen. You will live longer because I won't kill you, right? (laughs) But that's not exactly what Paul is talking about. If you go back to the Old Testament, there were promises all the way through the law. Look, if you obey God's commands... You follow the law. The the nation of Israel will live for a long time on the land God has promised. 
They will have blessing. The crops will grow. They'll have freedom from war and from their enemies. There will be blessing in this land. And here's what that command is promising, that if you start now obeying your parents while you're young and honoring them, that creates a pattern for the entire nation that they learn to obey God. And as you learn to obey God, you're going to have life in the land. Now, we're not the nation of Israel. We don't have that same promise. We don't live in the promised land. But Paul takes that promise and he moves it into the New Testament because there is a general principle here at play. And that is, in general, those who learn to obey authority when they're young do better in life when they get older. Right? There's, there are studies that bear this out. Study after study after study shows that children, when they are young, who are rebellious and will not listen to authority and will not obey, they grow up and they become adults who battle with authority. Right? And they battle with the police now, or they battle with the government, or they battle with a boss, and so they struggle economically. They have higher rates of incarceration, higher rates of drug use. But those who learn to obey while they're young. In general, it's a proverbial truth, not 100% true. In general, do better when they're older. I think this is why Romans 1, when it lists out all of these terrible vices that people go through as they're turning away from God, right? He lists out like murder and sexual immorality and greed and violence. And then right in there, he goes, and they were disobedient to their parents, Right, and you read that and go, that seems like an odd one, right? It doesn't fit, but it does. Because often that disobedience is the first phase toward rejecting God's authority. All right, so if you're a parent, uh, I would also say this. One of the most significant messages to communicate to our children is that obedience matters. Obedience matters. In fact, uh, years ago, my wife when she was talking to our kids, began to say this, obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings discipline. Now that, again, is that always true? Not 100%, but generally, yes. Paul says, in general, obedience brings blessing. We want you to obey, not because we need to be an overlord, but because we believe it's best for you to begin now learning to submit. If you are a grown-up, You say, look, I don't have to obey my parents anymore. I think Paul would say, you are called to honor and respect the position that they have as your parent. You say, well, they they didn't show me enough respect. They didn't do enough for me. Maybe they struggled. Maybe there was divorce in your family. Maybe your parents weren't there as often as you like. Maybe they were harsh. I think Paul would still say, you can honor and respect their position, if nothing else, for the fact that you're alive. Because the degree to which we honor our earthly parents is sometimes the degree to which our children will learn to honor us. How do they hear us talking about our parents? Are we gracious? Are we kind? Or do we roll our eyes every time the phone rings and you go, ah, it's mom. And so Paul speaks first and he says, children, obey and honor. Okay, but then he's going to go on, verse 4. And he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction 
of the Lord. All right, so children are called to honor and obey. Parents are called to raise their children to know Jesus. Now, there's two commands in this passage in verse four. First one is this, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, I I first read that, I'll be honest, this week I read it and I thought, that's impossible, right? As, As a father, I go, I cannot count the times that my children have become angry with me. Uh, If you have toddlers, you know, sometimes they just wake up angry at you, right? They are just ready to fight from the moment they get up in the morning. Okay, but but, but Paul, I want to walk through, why does Paul talk about this? Now, it's interesting. First of all, he says fathers. He, He directs the command to fathers. I do believe this applies to both parents. But remember, in their culture, we talked about this last week, the husband and the father bore the lion's share of accountability for God for the nourishing and flourishing of his family, right? The, the father was the one on whom the primary burden was going to rest. Okay, so he says, look, fathers, I'm talking to you first. It's going to apply to the mothers as well because the father is going to set that sort of standard. And he says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. That's the first command. Again, you have to recognize in the first century, a father, he could do anything he wanted to his kids. Okay, he could beat them. He could demean them. He could cut them down. He could even put them to death. There was no CPS in Nero's kingdom. He could do what he wanted. And so the general attitude toward children was that they needed to be subjugated, right, in Roman culture. Now, Jewish culture was a little bit different. Uh, Kids were not viewed as a nuisance or a problem, but they still exercised absolute authority. In fact, if you go to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 21, it's interesting, you'll see this, that it says, if a father has a kid who is rebellious and disobedient, And it says the mom and dad have talked to him, they've chastised him, and he won't listen. It says you need to take him and have him put to death because he's a rebellious child. Read that to your children tonight for their devotion. (laughs) Such an important passage. Okay, now what's interesting is there's no record of a father ever actually doing this. My sense is that most tried to work things out at home. Right, but that was the general attitude. If you look at the Apocrypha, the, the books written in between the Old and the New Testament, I ran across this passage this week from the wisdom of Sirach. I thought you might find this interesting. He who loves his son will whip him often so that he may rejoice at the way he turns out. An unbroken horse turns out stubborn and an unchecked son turns out headstrong. Pamper a child and he will terrorize you. Play with him and he will grieve you. Do not laugh with him or you will have sorrow with him. And in the end, you will gnash your teeth. It goes on. Give him no freedom in his youth and beat his sides while he is young or else he will become stubborn and disobey you and you will have sorrow of soul from him. Okay, that was the general attitude to how children were, be, were meant to be approached, right? You, you, you subjugate if you need to. You, you get a couple of good body blows in there, Right? They're like a wild horse, and you got to tame them, no matter what it takes. So you can see when Paul then says, look, fathers, don't provoke them to anger. That would have been a little bit unexpected. Right? And again, if you're a parent, you go, I've, I've done this. I've provoked my kids to anger all the time. In fact, just telling them what to do sometimes provokes them to anger. 
Right? And I don't think Paul would say, look, they're never going to be angry with you. Here's what I think he means. Don't create an environment where you are constantly adversarial toward your children. Don't create an environment that will develop in them a root of bitterness and anger that sticks in there until adulthood. Begin to train them that authority is important, but that the authority of God is always measured out for our best. It's always measured out for our best. So I show love and grace along with every exercise of authority. Don't provoke them to anger. There are probably a few ways that we could do this over the long haul. One would be this, to be overly demanding. Right, fathers and mothers, to be overly demanding. That is to nag, to always look for faults, to always look for the one thing they didn't do instead of the 10 that they did. To never express gratitude and love and grace, to refuse to acknowledge your own wrong and to refuse to forgive theirs. To set expectations that are unrealistic and unbiblical. Right, I was thinking, uh, even uh, growing up in my own family, one that has affected me that I've had to watch as a father was that we were a family that highly valued academic accomplishment. Right, and that's not a bad thing. Right? If, if God has given you a mind to accomplish things academically, by all means, steward it well. But I have to be careful not to place that expectation on my children. And to say the measure of success for you is the grades that you bring home and the college you get into and the career you move toward. And to remind myself of this, if my children use their gifts to the best of their abilities and they come home with C's and they don't go to college, but they faithfully pursue a career and they follow Jesus Christ, I say I'm proud of you. So Paul says, don't exasperate your children by, by creating an environment that is so demanding that they begin to push against it and get angry. And even in good expectations, the goal is that we slowly give them more freedom so that they learn to walk with God without us constantly having to chase them around and nag them to do it. One thing when I was the college pastor also that would always happen every fall semester Every single fall semester, I could, I could almost put it on a clock. I would get at least one phone call. And it was always from a mom of a freshman in college. And the call would always go something like this. She would say, my son doesn't want to go to church. Can you call him and tell him to come to church? But don't tell him I told you I called. I'm not making that up. Every single semester, there was one, usually more than one. And I would always say, well, how am I supposed to do that? There are 50, 60,000 students here. I don't call them all. How will I explain it? I don't know. Just say something. Get him to come. Right? And it was always a moment to have a conversation to say this. The goal is by the time you release them, that they have seen Jesus in you and they have seen Jesus in your life to the extent that hopefully they want to pursue him. And you know what? If they don't, because you can't control outcomes, you hit your knees and you pray and you pray and you pray. 
Right? So we don't want to provoke children by creating expectations and forcing them to meet our expectations, especially if they are not biblical expectations. But we also want to slowly increase that range of freedom. I think the other way you could exasperate your children is by communicating that they are a nuisance and then simply neglecting. Right? All along since I've been growing up, there's been sort of a uh, stereotype of dads as pretty disengaged, unable to handle anything. And Homer Simpson is the classic illustration of this. Right? Homer Simpson doesn't barely know his children's names. But he's what our culture thinks of when they think of a dad. And yet, as you look at the statistics, they bear out that a disengaged or absent father results in angry children. And I say that, you may go, you know what, that's already the situation in my family. I don't say that to say the story's already written, that there is no hope, because there's always hope and grace. And I know people who are walking with Jesus faithfully, having an impact, who came from homes where a dad was disengaged or not there. Because God is bigger than our parenting failures, praise Jesus. Okay, but moms and dads, are you engaged, right? The the newest meme that has sort of emerged isn't about dads, it's the wine mommy, right? You go on Facebook and there's these memes about mommies who are just waiting until the kids go to bed so they can break out a glass of red wine. And what's communicated? That children are the nuisance and the real life is once they're asleep. How do your kids hear you talking about them? talking to them? Or is it communicated that they're a nuisance? Is it communicated that you have better things to do? Because we really don't have better things to do than disciple and shepherd our kids. Right, so Paul says, don't provoke them to anger. So what are we supposed to do? And he gives one command, and his command is simply this. He says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This word, bring them up, it's interesting. Uh, it's the same word that he used back in chapter five when he says, husbands, love your wives as your own bodies, right? For no one ever hated his own flesh. But what does he do? He nourishes it. That word nourish, that's the same word used here. And it has the idea of, I feed the child. I take care of the child. I raise the child up, right? So you nourish and feed and take care of that child. How do you do that? In the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Two words here that mean training and teaching. I want to train them to know Jesus and I want to teach them to know Jesus. That's my task. What does training look like? Well, if you've ever had a coach, what does a coach often do? A coach will show you the skill and then tell you the skill. Right? So if you play basketball and the coach says, look, I want you to know how to dribble, he will show you the dribble and then he'll hand you the ball and let you try it and teach it to you. All right, so there are two elements of this training. One is to model Christ-like character. To model Christ-like character. About 10 years ago, there was a researcher named Christian Smith. And he did a longitudinal study of kids who had come out of Christian families. Right? And what he wanted to look at is what separates in general those who continue to pursue their faith in college and beyond from those who do not, right? Because the majority of kids, once they get to college, sort of drift away from church for about 10 or 15 years until they have their own children 
and then they come back to church. But he said, what, what is it that separates those who say, you know what, I'm going to stick with it. And here's what he said. I want to show you this quote. Christian Smith says this, when it comes to kids' faith, parents get what they are. Okay, notice parents don't get what they tell them to do. Parents get what they are. Right? If, if we want our kids to read the Bible, we have to be seen reading the Bible. If we want our kids to be generous with their money, we need to set a pattern of being generous with ours. If we want them to walk with Jesus, the most important thing we can do is walk with Jesus. There was quote after quote after quote from his book from kids who, who said, the reason that I go on mission trips is because when we were young, my parents prayed for the nations and then they took us on a mission trip and they gave of their money, they gave of their time and I admire them for that. Right? Our, our children will pick up on our hypocrisy with lightning speed. If you have kids, you know this. How many times have you been sitting, maybe this is just me, been sitting in your house and your kids come up and they say, Daddy, why can I only play on the iPad for 20 minutes a day? And I say, I, I will let you know when I finish this game. Right? <laughs> but it's important. Right? And they, they pick up on that. And so we begin to model that Christ-like character starting when they're young. I, I really believe the best thing you could do as a parent is to say, I want to invest in my relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to show them a pattern of worshiping at church. I want to show them a pattern of reading the scripture and of knowing Jesus to model Christ-like character. Right? The second thing is this, the teaching element. Teach them how to follow him. Teach them how to follow him. What, what do you do when you teach? Again, you show and then you give them an opportunity to do it. Right? My uh, wife, I've seen her do this in numerous spheres. One is uh, anybody who knows Shannon knows that she can make the best chocolate chip cookies on the planet, right? I would match them up against anybody's. Well, now my daughters, my oldest daughter has been making them for a while. Our middle daughter is learning to make them and I have watched Shannon train them to do it, right? So she goes in the kitchen and she'll show them. First, you get the flour and you pour this much in, in here and you pour it into this bowl. Now you try it, right? And so then they try it. Right? And, and over the course of a couple of hours, they learn to make those. It may take less time than that. I'm not sure. It feels like it when I'm waiting for the cookies. <laughs> but they learn how to make those cookies. Now, that's a win-win-win, right? It's a win for Shannon because she has multiplied her cookie-making capacity. It's a win for the child who now knows a skill she did not previously know. And it's a win for me, right? Because I have cookies. Okay? And so we train. I remember years ago, and I actually believe it was the Stimpsons I was talking to, um, we were interacting with one of their kids one afternoon and noticed how well the child, the kid was probably eight, nine, ten. We said, they, they look us in the eye and they answer our questions and then they ask us questions and they were great conversationalists. And we went and said, you know, Johnny and Cindy, what did y'all, what did y'all do? And of course, they were humble and they said, it's the grace of Jesus. And we said, yes, but what did you do to enact the grace of Jesus in their lives. And they said, well, one thing we did is, is we practiced. So I would ask, how was your day? And like any kid, they'd go, fine. We said, no, 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 fine is not an appropriate response yet. Okay, it's a good start. But you say fine, and then you say something you did about your day. Right, we read a book 
that I was interested in, and it was about the Civil War, and here's something I learned. And then you do this, then you ask a question. Have you ever learned something about the Civil War that was interesting to you? And allow the other person to respond, and think of this conversation like a ping-pong match, right? Where you got to keep the ball going back to the other person. And I thought, that's brilliant, because that's training them to understand that other people matter because they matter to Jesus, right? That's training. So Paul says, you have one goal, right? And and hopefully that takes the pressure off. You cannot control outcomes. I cannot control outcomes. Our goal is not that they get the best grades. Our goal is not that they shoot the most baskets. Our goal is not that they look the best. Our goal is not even ultimately that they behave the best, But our goal is to live our relationship with Jesus in front of them and then say, I want to train and teach you how to do the same. And then you pray that God would work. As we close, just a few thoughts by way of application. Okay, first of all, as we said, pray for your kids. Pray for your kids. Each and every day, morning, noon, and night, pray for your kids that they would come to know Jesus, that the Spirit would work in their heart, that at the right moment they would trust in Jesus for eternal life. Secondly, set the right goal. I think most of us would say that our goal is that they know Jesus and walk with him, but it's really hard to keep those goals in front of us in the grind of daily life, right? Because when they show promise, for example, academically or athletically, our temptation is to then begin to arrange the whole life of our family around that skill, right? To say, look, if they show a little bit of academic promise, they are going to be Einstein. Or he made a basket. He's Michael Jordan. And everything now is going to revolve around a secondary goal. But, but set in our minds and hearts now, the goal is that they know Jesus. All right, if you're a parent in here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus, I think the greatest thing you can do for your kids is understand the gospel and understand that Jesus died for your sins, all your shortcomings, all your rebellion against God, all your weaknesses as a parent. He died for those things and he rose again so you can have eternal life. And if you know him, the spirit of God empowers you for this task. And keep that goal fixed in our minds and hearts that our goal is that they know Jesus and walk with him. Third, model the right priorities. Model the right priorities. Many of us, we're going to need to go and we got to look at our uh, bank statements. We need to look at our calendars. We need to look at the way we arrange our time and our energy to ask the question, are my kids seeing me modeling a relationship with Jesus? Or if I ask them, and if you're brave, ask them this question. What do you think is most important to mommy and daddy? What do you think matters most? What are the values of our family? And hear how they respond. That will give you a gauge on the priorities that you're modeling for your kids. Fourthly, provide gentle instruction. Provide gentle instruction. Right? Don't provoke them to anger. Cover them with love and grace. When they fail... Discipline, exhort, and then pick them up and say, get back in there. Cover them with love and grace. Tell them not every day. Tell them 10 times a day, I love you. I love you. Jesus loves you. Cover them with love and grace. And then the last one is this. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. Because the grace of God doesn't only cover your children, it covers you. And my guess is there are some of you in here that you're hearing this and you think, I screamed at my children 
this morning. Before I walked in this room, I had a conflict with them, and I am ashamed of how I responded. And if it wasn't this morning, it might be this afternoon. So you say, God, forgive me. And then you get up and you say, I've got another day and another day. The reality is, even if you feel that you've gone to a place where you've really kind of messed up your kids, right? And you're like, they're going to end up in counseling in a few years because of me. Okay, first of all, the good news is most of them will. It's okay. (laughs) But also this, there's always another day. I don't care if your kids are 42. There's always another day. And so you say, God, give me the strength to be the parent you've called me to be in this moment and for the remainder of my life, however long you call me to be faithful. You can't control outcomes, but you say, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm just going to be faithful to train them to know Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. How convicting, but also how encouraging. Convicting because we know we fall short of your standards. Encouraging because we know that you and Jesus Christ have done everything to bridge the gap. Thank you for forgiving us. Every single one of us who's a parent in this room and every single one of us who's a child knows that we failed in these relationships. Because we bring ourselves to the equation. We bring our sin and our selfishness and our issues. And yet we also know, Lord, that if we know you, we bring you. And so we pray you'd be right in the center of those relationships. Father, give us strength to shepherd and parent well. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.